Welcome to Seoul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees unpack what it means to be Asian and adopted by discussing culture, race, history, and sharing adoptee stories. I'm Benny. And I'm Shanae. This week, it's all about motherhood. We are joined by fellow Korean adoptees and mothers, Mila Komnomis and Kaylin Brown. Mila and Kaylin, I'm so glad that we're able to sit down and talk about motherhood this week. Mother's Day was just yesterday, and I think that for a lot of adoptees, it's a day that can bring up a lot of feelings. And this year, especially for me, I know it feels a little bit different since I'm due with our first one um, shortly. But why don't you introduce yourselves and take a little bit of time to share your origin story as well as maybe what mom life currently looks like for you? My name is Kaylin Brown, and I am a Korean-American transracial adoptee. I was adopted when I was seven months old and raised in rural Pennsylvania, and I now live in Baltimore with my husband and our two kids, and I work full-time in ministry. My name is Mila Konomis, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I was born in Seoul, South Korea. 1975 and adopted at the age of six months old. And I've been with my partner for 18 years and we have a seven and 10 year old and um, definitely been managing motherhood uh, the past year in a pandemic, which has been very different. With a seven and 10 year old, the 10 year old is right on the cusp of middle school, which is exciting and terrifying at the same time, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, I think it's, he's, he's in that stage now where he's not like the cute little boy anymore. You know, he, he's starting to look like more like an, a teenager. I mean, he's not, but he's still far off, but he's, he's, he's tall for his age as well. So I think that it's been surreal getting adjusted to, cause he just turned 10 at the end of January. So I'm still making that transition into Oh wow, I have a 10-year-old now and it it actually does kind of shift I think the the conversations and kind of your awareness where it has been really interesting entering that stage of things and I'm starting to see what he is going to look like as an adult because his face has really changed and he's his voice has even gotten deeper which is really bizarre. I I don't think I was quite ready. <laughs> Yeah. And Kaylin, yours are little, right? Yes. My son is three and a half and my daughter just turned one. So she is a pandemic baby. Yeah. How has that been raising a child in the pandemic? A newborn, I should say. Part of it has been really beautiful in that we had a lot of bonding time together as a family of four. You know, my husband was able to work from home instead of having to go into the office. My son's daycare was closed, and so he was home. And there was there was a lot of getting to know each other in those in those first few months. So, but you know, it was also hard navigating not being able to see our families, not having people be able to meet her. I'm a really strong extrovert, and so not being able to share my baby with people and be able to really live communally like I'm used to was really hard. Yeah, I can imagine. I know even for us, we'll be giving birth, hopefully on sort of the end of the pandemic (laughs) curve now that the vaccines are out. But I know just 
even the grandparents, it'll be at least a couple months before we're able to travel and see them and, and being pregnant kind of in like an isolation. I feel like there are people that I saw before I was pregnant at the beginning of the pandemic. And now they'll see like a random picture or something. And it's like, oh my gosh, because <laughs> I feel like essentially I've been in hiding for the last, <laughs> the last nine months. So, but it's good for FOMO. I feel like I'm not missing out on, on too much. <laughs> so obviously with being a mom, you know, there are tons of different ways to have a family. We specifically are catering this episode around Korean adoptees who are biological mothers to their children. So everybody knows that's sort of the lens that this episode is coming through. But particularly for the two of you, what were your conversations and thoughts around deciding to have biological children versus adopting? So, you know, to be honest, when I was kind of young adulthood, I honestly was like, I'm never having kids and I'm never getting married. It was one of those. And when I was a teenager, I was very like, oh, I want to get married and have kids. But I think once I got out on my own, you know, just in the college setting, but even kind of beyond that, I was just like, no, mm -mm. marriage and children, not for me. <laughs> but, you know, things change, obviously. <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, met my now husband, who I've been with for 18 years now, and we have our two children. And so... I think really for me, even though initially it was not something I wanted, and I think honestly, part of the reason I didn't want it, I think was that I still was so kind of buried in my adoption trauma and pain, but didn't even know that, you know, but I think mm -hmm. the idea of being with someone else 24 seven, I mean, not literally, but that idea of having to have that attachment and that connection to a partner and another human life. I think deep down, it felt very overwhelming to me. It's not like I consciously knew that. But now that I'm where I am, I can look back and realize like, Oh, I just it, that that thought was just way too overwhelming and too terrifying. I think terrifying is like, I was terrified to try to be in a relationship with someone. I was terrified to try to be a mother to a child. So I think it was something that just, I just didn't even want to try to attempt. Um, but then, you know, I, I met my now partner and I think my mind just started to change because our love felt very sincere and authentic. And I felt at peace and happy. And I think initially, we were both kind of like, Oh, we could go either way with having kids. But I think eventually, we just both desired that and wanted that. And it was interesting, because we had talked about it and decided to, you know, start trying. And then I suddenly like got news that my Korean family had been found. And so those two things coincided where I did reunion and went to Korea. And then when I came back, it was like about a year later, I got pregnant and then gave birth to our first child. So that was a really interesting experience that I obviously didn't plan. You know what I mean? But being in reunion and getting pregnant and having a child kind of all around, you know, around the same time that that was a uh, super intense. So the timing of that was really interesting to me that it worked out like that. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that a lot because we had 
also had the conversation about adoption versus having biological children. And I think even early on, you know, my husband has always been open to adoption, obviously because of my history. And I was very pro-adoption first. Like my, I think my young adult mindset being in teaching and also still being very steeped in like the inheritance of white saviorism. I had always told myself, you know, if I'm 35 and not married, like I just want to adopt a bunch of foster kids from like all over. And that was going to be my mission in life. And even very much at the beginning of our marriage, that was how, you know, I had felt But for him, I think he took more of the approach of he was open to adoption, but he wanted to have biological children first. Mm. And I didn't necessarily feel like I had to have biological children. I didn't feel that like maternal instinct. But we said, well, let's just start trying, see what happens. And then we'll cross that bridge when we get there, if we have infertility issues and things. But I also found my birth mother coincidentally about, I think, Benny, you probably know dates even better than I do because I had talked to you about finding her. I think you were one of the first people that I told. And I had gotten in contact with her and then found out that I was pregnant like three weeks to a month later. Oh, wow. So it was like very quick. And it was, I think, for me at least, thankfully – I had a very, I would say, positive experience finding her. Um, it hasn't gone very far yet. So, you know, I, it wasn't something that I felt like added to a lot of trauma. But I think it did bring a little bit of a sense of closure in a weird way. It was meant to happen like that chapter was closed. And now I can embark on my own motherhood journey. But it's definitely, I can definitely empathize with <laughs> the close succession of those two events. How about you, Kaylin? Yeah, when I was younger, it was kind of always this, well, I was adopted, so of course I'm going to adopt someday. And as I've gotten older and as I've understood more about why people adopt and the, um, you know, just the industry around adoption as well, I realized that it might not be something that I am necessarily built for. even though I was myself adopted. And, you know, it was also a discussion I had with my husband when, even when we were dating, you know, would we be, would he be open to adoption considering my story? And he said he was always open to it, but, you know, he did want to have biological children. It was always one of his hopes for his life. And the more that we continued through our relationship and our marriage, it just never really felt like, it was the thing that we were being called to step into. And so who knows what could change in the future. But I think as I've been processing my own adoption and also thinking about how adoptive parents um, can feed into that saviorism and um, just kind of the industry and the, the money-making around adoption, it's just not something that I would feel comfortable stepping into for me personally. Yeah. So for me, I never wanted to adopt. Like that was never something that appealed to me. And again, I think it goes back to even though I was very just unaware and out of touch and disconnected from how I felt about adoption or how it impacted my life, there was something deep down in me subconsciously, I think that was just so averse 
to participating in adoption. And I think it was it was very personal for me where it felt it was always in my mind, like, why would I do that to someone? Why would I do that to a child? Why would I cause that type of pain and separation? Um, and so even prior to understanding the adoption industry and how it actually causes family separation, like I didn't even have that context yet in me, that that is how it felt to me, even before I reunited and understood the circumstances and how, again, adoption led to family separation in my case. And so uh, there was something in me that just never wanted to do that. And, you know, my husband kind of, you know, while he was open to that idea, it's it was never something in him where he felt like, oh, you know, let's do this. He's always been very supportive. And when I said, no, I am not interested in that at all, he was like, cool. I, that's totally cool with me, you know? Um, and so I, yeah. And, you know, and I did grow up in um, church culture and often encounter people telling me, oh, well, you're an adoptee. You should adopt. Like it's almost kind of like it was my obligation to, or my duty to, or like that was the fulfillment of my purpose was that I, Mm -hmm. because I was adopted, I must also adopt, you know, like the gospel of adoption basically. And so I think, but but even with that, I was just always like, no, I'm I'm not. No, you you can't tell me what I'm supposed to do. First of all, and second of all, just because I'm adoptee doesn't mean that I should adopt. Just like not everyone should be a parent. <laughs> like, like just, you know, um, and I, you know, I don't mean for that to come a- across as super judgmental, but I just like not everyone needs to be a parent. You know. Um, some people don't want to be parents, you know, and that's okay. And so I think that that pressure really bothered me as well. Because I, again, I think deep down, there was just this discomfort, something felt wrong to me, something didn't feel right. And then obviously, as I learned more, as you both have mentioned, I mean, adoption is an industry, and it, it causes so much harm. It goes back to that idea of intent versus impact. You know what I mean? No matter how good someone's intentions may be, you have to look at the actual impact that's occurring. And there's just so much uh, harm that's created. It's so interesting that you talk about how you didn't necessarily know the reasons why yet, but that you just like had this feeling because I know even when my husband and I first talked about adoption, in my mind, I always pictured adopting a child not from Korea or not from an Asian country. And it was not necessarily intentional, but I had always assumed that I would adopt from somewhere else, like in my mind. And it wasn't until we were faced with some infertility issues that we started looking and I started looking at adopting from Korea because, you know, logically, I do understand that in some ways being an adoptee, we're maybe primed a little bit more to deeply empathize with children who we could potentially adopt. And I I get that, but I also get that, you know, we don't necessarily have the emotional capacity (laughs) um, to do that. But then I had found that we wouldn't even be eligible to adopt a child from Korea because at least through the agencies that we were looking at, their criteria around mental health was really strict. And I have bipolar two disorder that is very, you know, medically documented. And I thought that it was so interesting because in my mind, all I could think of was, okay, you know, as a Korean adoptee on the one hand, 
that should make me definitely qualified in many ways to be a parent of a Korean adoptee. But also, if you have this mental health exclusion, how do you expect any adoptee to get to adulthood without some kind of (laughs) mental health, you know, situation or, you know, some kind of trauma just by the fact that they're an adoptee. Um, So it was just a very interesting thing to realize that there's that contradiction. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you said that, actually, because that made me I had, you know, I'd forgotten about I think when my husband and I, you know, were kind of talking through things initially, what you talked about as far as like, well, if we adopted, where would we adopt from? And when I was explaining to him why this was just not even an option for me, one of the things that was at the center of it for me was like, no matter if I did adopt, which I don't want to, I have no capacity to help a Korean child retain their language, their culture, their origins, because I don't speak the language. I didn't grow up in a Korean family. I have no connection to South Korea. So I would be doing exactly the same thing to them that was done to me. I would be separating this child from their origins. I would be separating this child from their language and their food and their nation and their people and bringing them here to experience the same racism and (laughs) trauma and isolation and and separation as I have. And sure, I'm an adoptee and I know what it's like, but so what? So I'm going to do that to to a child in the same way? So I think for me, when I explained it like that, you know, and and I was kind of like the only I'm like, I I guess like if we adopted a half white, half Asian child here in America, then maybe at least like they could grow up with people looking like them. But even still, again, I have no capacity to pass on and retain the, the culture and language, especially at that time, you know, this was so long ago. And so I think that was another thing in my mind that was just I guess another reason that developed over time as to why I didn't feel comfortable pouring my resources into that, you know, and you also mentioned kind of initially struggling with infertility. And that was, you know, I wasn't older, but I was like on the cusp of turning 35 when we were wanting to get pregnant. And when I did find out, you know, I did eventually get pregnant, but a year, almost a year had passed. And I wasn't getting pregnant. And so my OB had referred us to a fertility specialist, you know, and especially because of my age. And so I think because of that, I kind of did go through this process of being kind of like, well, maybe we're not going to have kids because adoption was not an option. So I kind of had gotten to this place for me personally, where I was like, I would, I'm fine with not having children. I'm not, but you know, I'm not going to go and adopt just because I want to have a child, but I was okay with going through life without having children as well. Yeah. And I think that self-realization and because there are adoptees and transracial adoptees who adopt for various reasons and they're, they're great parents and their kids are wonderful and it's beautiful. And it's, it's just such a personal choice, I feel like. And I commend you for sticking to what felt right for you, because I do know like we had had situations with medical professionals and things that, you know, they're a little pushy about 
well, mm-hmm. you, you might be infertile. So have you considered adoption? <laughs> um, and I can see how people who are maybe not as self-aware or as confident can really be impacted by that. Caitlin and Mila, we had a really good discussion last night just about your stories. And I've learned so much about both of you and realized that I have some blind spots in my perception of what parenthood is. Um, (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) But I think uh, what really stuck with me is everyone on this call has very unique experiences and a lot more to unpack as transracial adoptees and living in a country that looks a lot different than we are. So with that being said, how do you approach motherhood and special days like Mother's Day when you know that maybe you're not the traditional you know, parent or mom that maybe everyone thinks you are? What are some of those traditions or your, your mindsets on, on motherhood? I think for me, I just love celebrations in general. I'm an Enneagram 7. And so I'm all about parties and being celebrated. And so for me, Mother's Day hasn't been as hard of a holiday to celebrate, especially since I became a mother, because I love getting pampered by my kids slash it's really my husband who's doing it because you know my <laughs> child is three. <laughs> um, but the harder, the harder celebration for me is my birthday because I was taken from my birth mom on the day I was born and where most people have really joyous, you know, family stories passed down about their birth. I don't have that. And I think about not just kind of the trauma associated with removing a child, an infant from their mom, but I, I'm sad for what my mom had to experience on that day. And so For me, that's a harder day for me to acknowledge than Mother's Day, but I'm learning what it means to also honor my mom, honor my my adoptive mom, and the ways that she has loved me and raised me and cared for me, while also taking some time to mourn a relationship that I don't have with my biological mom. Yeah, definitely. well put. For me, Mother's Day is a little bit, um, it's difficult. I, I think even yesterday I mentioned for me, it tends to it tends to be a day of mourning for me. It's not, you know, even though I am so grateful and I, you know, as much as I will like complain sometimes, I love being a mom. Like I love it so much. I adore my children and they teach me so much and I cannot imagine my life without them. I mean, they are just beautiful and perfect to me. So I treasure it. Like I treasure it so much. And I'm and I'm so grateful, even though the, the pandemic has been really hard, kind of like what Kaylin said, we've had so much extra time together. But I think for me, it's also motherhood is so layered and so complicated because as an adoptee, in the midst of all of this beauty and connection and meaning, for me, there's always this layer of grief and pain and sorrow. Being a mother can be very triggering as an adoptee. You know, there will be sometimes the most simple moments And I just all of a sudden want to burst into tears 
there was this one moment when um, my daughter and I were having a meal together. This, I mean, she was little. She was about two years old, something like that. And we were sitting at the table. And we had actually one of those low Korean tables because you could fold up the legs. We have a small place, so it was nice. We could fold the table up and put it away if we needed to make more space. So we were sitting at this low Korean table, and we were actually eating like rice and kim, as we call it. And I just all of a sudden had this moment of overwhelming emotion because I've tried to teach our kids like what few words and phrases I know in Korean. And so at that time, it was like, you know, mani mani means more or kim, you know, seaweed or um, juiceo for please or whatever. And so she was saying these little things, you know, like mani or bop or kim. And I think in, in that moment, it was such a mundane moment, right? We're just like sitting at the table eating food. She's got like rice all over her face and pieces of Kim like flex on her arms. You know, it's just it's a disaster whenever kids eat, right? And I just, I mean, just tears started streaming down my face because I was just like, I didn't get this with my Oma, who I'm in reunion with now, but like, I'm not going to get the, I can't travel back in time and like, be with her when I'm two years old and eat a meal with her, right? But also so grateful that I'm getting to have that moment and that my daughter is getting to have that moment with me. But I but but moments like that, I can't help but think also about my Oma, you know, especially because now I'm in reunion with her and I know her. I've 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 been in reunion for 12 years now, you know, and she's she's always on my mind. You know, there are always these moments that I'm just like kind of brought back to that. So I think that motherhood for me is glorious and amazing, but there is always this layer of grief and loss that just kind of lingers and it never really goes away. And I've learned to accept it. It's not, I think sometimes people have this idea like, well, you need to heal. You need to heal you know, like move on. And I'm just like, well, maybe that works for you, but that's not my version of healing. You know, I think I've had to grapple with that as an adopting, especially one who was in the church for a long time, where there was so much pressure of like, you need more faith, or you need to have more faith to heal, or you need, you know, and it's just like, um, healing is nonlinear. And you can't tell someone else how they need to heal. You know, and so I think part of my healing has been accepting that there are some wounds and some losses that you just don't ever truly like move on from or get over with. You learn to live with it and you learn to accept it and you learn to see the beauty that can come out of that and the power that can be in that of embracing that reality. And I think that that's what motherhood has been teaching me is that I can have enough space for all of that. I can revel in the the beauty of it and those gorgeous moments while also feeling deep sorrow and grief for what I have lost and what I will never get back. I think even as we approach Mother's Day, I just kind of allow myself to to feel all of that and to hold space for all of that. You know, as someone who Right, has this experience of being adopted, of not knowing my family or culture of origin, and now building that for myself and my own family, I think it's given me a lot of 
of insight into what does it mean to be building something, especially something that hasn't been done before, right? And I think it also helps me hold complexity for others. I did not struggle with fertility. We did not have any issues getting pregnant or, you know, having to wait or really question whether it would be viable for us. And, you know, I have several friends who have really struggled, who have had to weigh options of IVF or adoption for themselves. And, you know, I also haven't had uh, any miscarriages, you know, both times I've gotten pregnant, I've been able to carry my children to term and have a safe delivery. And I mourn for those who don't have that experience or have had losses that I can't imagine. And so I think sometimes I can kind of play into the victim mentality of my situation and my story and how terrible it is. I think becoming a mom now and having the experiences that I've had, it's helped me open my heart to empathize with others who have similar traumas around motherhood and parenting, but different than what I've experienced. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like the the motherhood quilt is so diverse. There are so many circumstances that are, you know, maybe different in situation, but the pain that they can cause is quite similar. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to like downplay my, my trauma or the things that I've gone through. But like I said, I think it's just helped me open, open my eyes and lift my eyes to see other ways that parenting and motherhood and family is, is complicated for a lot of people. I think that that actually alludes to, I think, with being adoptees, and, and in particular transracial, transnational adoptees, I feel like we live at the intersection of so many different experiences and issues. And again, I'm not saying, therefore, we understand everything. I'm not saying that at all. But kind of what Kaylin was saying, I think, ironically, because of our trauma and our pain and our losses, that we are able to empathize and to connect with others in so many different ways because of all of the layers that we experience as a result of being transracially, transnationally adopted. I mean, there's just, there's so much that comes with it, you know? So I love that Kaylin said that, not just with motherhood, but in so many other areas of life and so many other areas of pain and hurt. I think when we're able to embrace it in ourselves and deal with it ourselves, it enables us to also be able to connect with others. How have you and in your families chosen to navigate raising your children in regards to honoring Korean heritage or the fact that they are mixed race children, especially in such a racialized society? How have you chosen to approach that balance? I don't know if balance would be the right word, (laughs) more as experimenting and seeing (laughs) what fits and what doesn't Mm -hmm. fit. (laughs) For my husband and I, my children are biracial, they are Korean and Black. We have thought a lot about what does it mean for them to know that they are fully both, while also knowing that their family is white. So for us, that has meant... For my husband and I, we've wanted to be intentional about them knowing both of their cultures 
and heritages, even as I still don't really know what it means to be Korean. And I have a lot of questions about what that looks like. And so, like I said, it's just a lot of experimenting and kind of seeing what works and what doesn't. For a while, we tried to teach my first child to call me Oma. And it just, it didn't feel right. I didn't feel like his Oma. I felt like his mama. And so he, he and my daughter call me mama. And that feels like what is right for our family. For both of them, we did celebrate their bakils, uh, their 100 days. And we did do a dole for both of their birthdays, their first birthdays. And one of my friends who is Korean American actually let us borrow her children's hanboks for their birthdays, which was really special to me because I would have no idea where to start on finding and acquiring those outfits, but it really was special to me to be able to do that. For my daughter, you know, she was a pandemic baby, so we weren't really able to have a party for her. But for my son's birthday, we were really intentional, especially around the food that we got. And so we kind of, we had a two-part party. And so the first part was for family. And then the second part was for friends because our house is only so big. And for the family part of the party, we had more traditional soul food. So my husband's mom actually cooked some barbecue, mac and cheese, greens, really just food that was from his culture and from his upbringing. And then for the friend party, we got Korean fried chicken catered. (laughs) And that was what we had with our friends. And so... You know, I don't know what is next in terms of (laughs) traditions that we can do for our children now that they're over one. But again, I think it's just figuring out what feels right for us. You know, right now it's ensuring that they're not the only ones who might look like them in their classes, um, in the activities we choose to put them in, especially at, at their schools. You know, Baltimore is a pretty black and white city in general. There isn't a large Asian population. There's not a Chinatown or a Koreatown or anything like that. And so we'll have to be a little bit more intentional on the Asian side and representation. But being one of the onlys in my school growing up, that was obviously hard. And the interesting thing was too about my high school is there were three other Korean girls in my school and we were all adopted. Mm. And, you know, so there was just like nothing in terms of, you know, access to aunties or food or anything to really explore in my hometown. And so I think just giving them the opportunities to choose into what feels right for them. So we'll see how that goes. They're still pretty young and, you know, kind of just have to do what we tell them to do still. (laughs) But, you know, I'm equally excited and nervous for how they will choose to identify and step into their heritage as they grow older. But, you know, I think that's just how parenting is in general, right? You're like, I really just hope my children are not jerks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I really, um, I love what Kaylin said about how it's experimenting because, and you know, even Benny, when you said earlier, when you were like, oh, I realize I have some blind spots. And I was like, don't we all, you know, because I think that, I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, I haven't even been doing it for that long. I mean, yeah, sure. My kids are seven and 10, but they are nowhere near adulthood. You know what I mean? And so I think that it's overwhelming 
you know, it's obviously a very overwhelming responsibility, one that we chose, obviously. So you got to like, you know, be like, I'm overwhelmed, but I got to also like get it together here. But I think I've like been very, I'd say just push pull with the whole Korean thing as a parent. Um, I think very early on when my kids were younger, you know, we did a lot of that where, you know, we tried to use what Korean words we knew, both my husband and I, and always having rice and kim and kimchi. And we'd go to H Mart all the time and get snacks from there and take them to the food court. And I think a lot of like the food part of things, you know, really wanting them to have exposure to the food because that's so central to really any culture, but it's very central, obviously, to being Korean. I even tried like going to a Korean church for a little while when they were younger. You know, our son might have been like four or five, the daughter, you know, a toddler. And, you know, I think have tried lots of, as Kaylin said, experimenting, you know, did the toll celebration. We didn't do the Bekil, but um, you know, did the toll and that traditional thing. And, but I think that what has really kind of taken more of the kind of the forefront for me is talking about race and talking about what it, what it's like and what it means to be Asian in America and in the community that we're in. You know, we did intentionally try to find a school where they would be around other kids who were mixed race. You know, I didn't, it didn't necessarily have to be exactly half white and half Asian, where fortunately that has ended up working out. There, but uh, the school that they're at actually has a higher percentage of multiracial, multiethnic families. But similar to what Kaylin said, in Atlanta, generally speaking, it's also very black and white. I mean, we're in the South and there has been a big, obviously a huge shift in Georgia, as evidenced by the the recent election and all of that, but it's still very black and white. Even just the discussions and the schools are highly segregated still here. You know, it's like you still have kind of modern Jim Crow happening. So I think that trying to find a school, even that was really difficult, trying to find a school where they could go and they weren't going to be the tokens. They weren't going to be the trophies at the school. So we feel fortunate in the sense that they have friends that look like them, but also they're multi-ethnic and multiracial, have different backgrounds and have families with parents who are of different races. So I think that that has been something that's been important as a parent and wanting them to be in a school and an environment. You know, I've been very intentional with their friendships, you know, with the, the, the moms that I hang out with, with the friends that, that, you know, it's not, I'm not controlling them where I'm like, you can't be friends with that person, but I'm trying to avoid being in white dominant spaces because I have come to view that as being hostile to my children and not even overtly. I mean, covertly and passively. Because I remember what it was like for me growing up in those spaces and how difficult it is as a child to not internalize the whiteness and the bias for whiteness. You don't even have to say anything, but if that's all you're ever around and that's the only people who are your friends and the only standards of beauty and appearance that are being highlighted and valued, kids internalize that, you know? And so I think my, you know, as far as my my parenting goes and trying to incorporate Korean culture or pride or anything like that. I think it's uh, it's been closely connected with race 
And especially in the, in the more recent context, you know, in the past four or five years, really having a lot of conversations around that, around being Asian, but also being Black, you know, I think that they have um, a lot of Black friends and they need to understand that as well. And trying to also make sure that we are raising our kids to be pro-Black because that I think that's something that's so um, also associated with being Asian, even though that's not my context in the sense of I don't have like an immigrant family here in America. But so I think that that aspect of parenting is always evolving. And as they're getting older, it's really becoming more and more important and significant. For instance, we recently, both our kids brought up in separate instances, our son brought up, he kind of asked, he was like, why doesn't anyone at school teach about Asian people? Like they teach about everyone else, you know, they teach about indigenous people. And he's like, and that's good. I'm glad they do. And they teach about, you know, Martin Luther King. And he's like, but, but how come, how come no one teaches about Fred Korematsu or Yuri Kochiyama? Like what, why, why, you know, and I, we had to have a conversation about that, right. About the erasure of Asian history and um, from American consciousness or whatever. But then my daughter was on a walk with my husband and they're walking past a house and, you know, it was a good thing they had like a Black Lives Matter sign, but she stopped and she's like, that's really cool. You know, we, we see a lot of those, but like, how come nobody's like talking about or putting signs in their lives about Asian people and protecting Asian people? Because we've had conversations about what's been happening in this country. And they're at that age now where they notice that kind of thing, right? They're not... Their kids are always paying attention. They're always watching. They're always listening. And um, so I think that that's been a very sobering aspect as a parent and as an adoptee, because I'm just trying to figure it out. Because it's not like I can go to my parents and be like, hey, mom and dad, <laughs> help me out with this. You know, it's like they don't even acknowledge that racism is a thing. So they're, they're, off, the, they're, they're off the table for that. Mila and Kaylin. Thank you both for sharing your stories. What I'm interested in hearing now after all of that is what has been the most challenging thing of being a mother and what has been maybe the most rewarding thing as a mother and what do you look forward to and your kids growing up? I think so far the most challenging thing has been how do I raise kids that are empathetic and resilient and independent, right? All of all of those things, especially in response to breaking generational trauma and interrupting kind of ways that I was raised or my mom or my husband was raised that still, you know, don't sit right with us anymore. And we can kind of look back and see you know, these are things that we really want to do with our children or how we want our family to be, even though that's not what our family looked like growing up. And so it's just, you know, how how do you do that? How do you model what that looks like when it feels new and foreign to you? And so I've just really been trying to think through what were messages that I wished I had heard growing up um, and how can I help instill them? But also, how do I not project my trauma and brokenness on my child before they 
are able to experience anything. You know, my son, he's three and everything is hard and all of the feelings are big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, how do I, how do I reinforce to him? Like, it is okay to be mad. It is okay to be sad. You know, it is okay to cry. You, you're allowed to cry and be mad at mama for not getting what you want. You're not getting what you want, <laughs> but you're allowed to, you know, have those feelings about that. Even when I'm beyond upset with him for his actions, <laughs> how do I try to keep it together? And then when I don't keep it together, how do I repair that and say, hey, you know, mama had big feelings too. I'm sorry I yelled at you. I think what has given me the most joy is seeing them become empathetic and resilient, right? And seeing those traits start to come out. The other day, I wasn't feeling great. I was feeling a little sick and I was laying down. And after dinner, my son came up to me and he's just like, mama, are you still feeling sick? Do you want some more crackers? I can get those for you. Here, hold my toy while I go get you some food. (laughs) You know, completely unprompted. You know, just those like melt your heart moments where like, okay, something I am doing (laughs) is getting through even when I feel like it's not. And so I'm excited for them to continue to grow and learn and develop. And, you know, I think, Mila, hearing some of the questions that your kids are asking and the conversations that you're able to have with them now that they're a little older and more aware, I'm excited for those conversations to come. And I'm excited to see my kids become their own little people with their own little minds and creativity and dreams. Yeah. I pretty much just like echo everything that Kaylin just said. <laughs> like I really like can totally, the, especially the feelings part, like learning how to manage your own feelings as the parent while still providing the space and the safety for your children to feel their big feelings because their feelings are just as big and just as valid. You know, as I was listening to Kaylin and thinking about like most challenging and then most rewarding, I think for me, one of the things that has been most challenging as a parent and parenting as an adoptee is the isolation, like as I was really trying to think about it. And I guess what I mean by that is kind of, we've alluded to it some already, but that feeling of like, I I don't have anyone to go to. I don't have anyone to provide support. You know, I'm pretty much motherless and fatherless in the sense, even though I'm in reunion and even though I'm still in relationship with my adoptive mother and father, I can't go to any of them for emotional support or parenting support. We have, you know, obviously, (laughs) it's pretty obvious why with my Korean parents, I mean, we're in reunion, but we don't speak the same language. We don't have that history. We don't have that kind of relationship. And with my adoptive parents, while I love them, we just, you know, I'm trying to break the cycle, like what Kaylin said. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to break the cycle. I'm not trying to repeat the things that happened. Do you know what I mean? And so they're not, they're not safe people for me to go to, to get parenting help and parenting advice from. And so I think that while I do have close mom friends and we support each other, we're stumbling along in the same way, right? Part of why we've been drawn to each other as parents, I think is because we have similar values, but also because we're in similar situations, you know, and 
most of my close mom friends are not adoptees. It's just kind of the way it's worked out. So I think while we support each other, they're not adoptees. And so I think that isolation is still there where it's kind of like the struggles as a parent, as an adoptee. I think while there can be overlap, there's also a lot that just feels difficult to try to explain or to try to unpack with someone. And then I echo what Kaylin said. I think the emotional side of things for me, like making sure that I'm doing my own work and healing so that I'm not traumatizing my children with my trauma, you know, that I'm not scarring them and wounding them because I haven't been doing my work to heal. Like I'm the parent and it's not their responsibility, right? Um, So I think that that has also been really challenging. And then as far as the most rewarding thing, I think similar to Kaylin is I love, love, love just getting to witness them becoming their authentic selves. And I think as an adoptee, this is something that is so important to me as a parent is providing the space and the foundation and the freedom for them to express themselves wholly and authentically without feeling like they have to be someone or be some way to make me happy. Like I don't want the, and again, I'm imperfect. I'm not, not saying there aren't moments where I'm a big fat jerk, but I think overall, I love getting to just watch them blossom and I mean, honestly, it's like when they tell me that they're mad at me and that they don't like what I said, or I kind of am almost like inside, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> just because I'm like, <laughs> they, they feel safe and free to say those things, right? And sometimes it hurts, but at the same time, sometimes I delight in the fact that they can be who they are. They feel safe enough to be angry and to yell at me. I'm not saying that that's good. And we, we talk about that. You know, we talk about healthy ways to express your anger, healthy ways to, to talk about it. So like Kaylin said, it's totally natural to be angry, but it's not okay to hit someone or it's not okay to be violent towards someone. That That's not a healthy, loving way to express your anger, you know? But at the same time, when that does happen, I think for me, I just take so much joy in the fact that they feel free to be themselves because at least if, the, if you can't be free and you can't be yourself at home, then what hope do you have? You know what I mean? And as an adoptee from, you know, I know it's not everyone's situation, but for me, I didn't have that freedom. You know, I didn't have that safety. I didn't have that refuge or that haven. And so that to me has just been so amazing. And I'm so excited to see them grow up. My husband and I talk about that all the time. Like, who are they going to be? And it's so fun watching their personalities just become more and more radiant and brilliant and strong and powerful as they get older and as they mature and watching them become their own people and watching them set their boundaries, you know, kind of being like, no, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I'm, we, we had a thing that was going on yesterday and our son was just like, I, 
I'm not, I, I don't want to participate. I don't, I'm like, that's totally fine. I mean, when I was like 10, I was like afraid to like speak up for myself or to say that I didn't want to do something. So I just went along with whatever my parents did, even if it was like making me crazy, you know? So yeah, that part is really, really rewarding. I know I'm not there yet, <laughs> but I definitely, I think, you know, and even just thinking about motherhood can relate to everything that you both just said. I know in terms of expressing feelings and how do you do that healthily and also, you know, managing my own trauma and my own feelings and Mila, particularly your comment about the isolation, I think really resonated because as I, you know, especially recently have had more conversations with my husband and my parents and my in-laws about the fact that I will be the only family member that my daughter has as a racial mirror and that literally everybody else in her extended family, she's, you know, aside from me, she's going to be the only in her own family. Yeah. Um, and what that's like and how, you know, my husband and I had a conversation about or several conversations about how are we as parents going to talk to her about race and, you know, if she experiences any racism or prejudice. And, and I remember feeling really sad because I felt like in so many ways I was going to need to do that alone because, you know, even though he would, he's a great partner, he's super supportive. And I know he'll be right there next to me for those conversations as a white man, (laughs) Mm -hmm. there are things that he just can't say or can't, you know, truly empathize with um, and trying to, you know, even educate other members of the family and saying things like, you know, can you please read this book about raising a multiracial child? And, you know, even the danger of things saying, you know, oh, you're going to be half Korean and half white and quantifying that versus just saying mixed race or whatever. And, and those things that I'm learning too, you know, as a human and as a parent, but there are definitely moments I feel like where it's, it is, it's like, wow, I am totally on an island <laughs> in terms of navigating particularly that aspect of, of being a mom as an adoptee. But also, yeah, I look forward to kind of seeing what she becomes. And we, we like talking about, you know, what do we think she's going to do? And <laughs> what traits do you think she's going to pick up from each of us? And you know, hopefully she gets this trait, but not this trait from you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) all of that stuff. So listening to you guys talk about that gives me a lot of, a lot of hope and a lot of excitement. You know, one thing with you, with what you were saying, Shanae, about like what you just said about like, oh, what traits is she going to have? Or I think that that, that's actually something that's also really rewarding and fun about parenting. And I think as adoptees, right, because we grow up isolated from having that genetic connection and that mirroring and reflection. And so being a parent and seeing like yourself in your child, you know, not in like some narcissistic way, but of just kind of like the power of DNA and blood and heredity, you know, it's just like, it's incredible. And it's, it's funny and it's hilarious. And sometimes it's also distressing because you're like, Oh, no, like, that's totally for me. Like, I'm like a disaster. You know, I don't know if you guys have heard of like the order Muppet versus chaos Muppet. 
thing, but it's like my husband is a order Muppet and I am a chaos Muppet and our son is an order Muppet and the daughter is a chaos Muppet. And I'm just like, I know, I'm sorry. She got that totally from me. I mean, we just, everywhere we go, we're just making messes, you know, cause we're just so scattered all the time. Whereas the husband and the son are just like, have a place for everything and keep it organized and keep it, you know. And so I think that that, that aspect of, of parenting is rewarding. And it's also just so much fun. It's so much fun, like seeing, being able to see like who, what they got and who they are. And um, yeah, I, I, I am excited for you, Sinead, for you to experience that. And it's, it's just that part of thing. And you, you start to see it really early. It's amazing how early their personalities I mean, really from day one, I mean, it's, it's amazing now that I have a better sense of my children. Cause when they're young, you're still getting to know them, right? You don't really know who they are. Um, but as their personalities emerge more and more, you're able to kind of look back and be like, Oh, when they were six months old and they did that, that was totally them. Like that was their personality. We just didn't realize it at the time, you know? So that, yeah, that's, that's fun. That's a fun thing. <laughs> I was going to add, you know, it's it's cool seeing what traits my kids are picking up personality-wise, but I wasn't expecting how jarring it would be for them picking up my physical traits, right? Because I'm just not used to having family who looks like me. And when my son came out, he was Korean. Mm. <laughs> he came out and he looked very Korean um, through his first year of life. He's evened out a little bit since then. But, you know, it was there was a really big disconnect that I'm actually still working through where, you know, I look at my son and I can say, oh, he looks Korean. But there's a disconnect between me saying he looks Korean and he looks like me. Hmm. Because when I look in the mirror, I still struggle with feeling Korean or feeling like I look Korean. I, You know, I even went through a phase where I was like, I bet one of my parents is half white or something because I don't look, I don't think I look fully Korean. And many people have told me like, no, you're, you're Korean. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But just that disconnect for me, I can see my son and I can recognize how he looks Korean, but it's been a lot for me to reconcile that. But you know, it's, it's from me. It is, it is me. um, Even if it doesn't always feel like that. Caitlin and Mila, you've been so gracious with your time. And before we let you go, both of you are incredible poets and writers. You're in the arts. Is that going to rub off on your kids? When, when is that conversation going to start? Are you going to start getting them, dipping them into the arts? You know, my child, my son is not a performer. He <laughs> recently had a spring program at his school and he just flat out refused to participate during practices, during rehearsing the songs, he would not sing them for his teacher. And even up until the day of the program, you know, she said, okay, come on, you know, it's, it's time to go up front. Do you want to go up front? And he just stood there and said, nope. <laughs> so I'm not sure if performing is necessarily in the cards for him. Um, my daughter, she does like to dance. She does. She does like to bust some moves when the songs <laughs> come on. So, so we'll see what what shakes out for her. Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that because that's. I think that's something where we've really seen the genes, the DNA, play out. And um, both of our kids are very artistic because my my partner is also an artist. And my daughter is already writing poetry. I mean, her poetry is intense. I mean, sometimes I just want to burst into tears. 
Um, she's actually going to have a poem published pretty soon here in the Korean Quarterly, which is in Minnesota. She wanted me to share something she had wrote. She, she wrote this poem actually called Adopted Me. And it was basically a poem that she wrote that I, I feel like conveys her understanding and experience of having a mother who is adopted and kind of how she perceives it. And I guess how she perceives it through me, right? And through how I try to navigate and move through my life as an adoptee. And it's, oh, you know, when she shared it with me, I just was like, (laughs) you know, I was just like, this is so intense. And she totally gets it. She's seven years old, and she gets it better than a lot of adults do. And I think, again, it's when you provide the space for kids to be authentic, and we don't project ourselves onto them, or what they're supposed to be or think, I think sometimes they're so smart. And there are things that they understand when you let them. So yeah, she 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 loves to write poetry. She loves to draw. She also um, loves to dance. Her son also writes a lot. He journals. He writes poetry. He loves to draw as well. So I think that that's something that's also been really, I think, fun to see, again, the power of DNA as adoptees just being amazed. You know what Kaylin said, sometimes it it is jolting, I think, in the sense of like, where you're just like, wow, I was just born that way. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't my fault. Like, I just, I came into the world this way. And you watch your kids and you realize they're just born this way. You know, you can't, you just, you just got to water them and give them sunlight and help them to grow into whoever they're going to be. But there's no pressure on our kids to like, be artists or to go into that. But I think it's something that already seems to be naturally a part of who they are and how they, I think with my daughter in particular, she really processes a lot of her feelings. Her poetry is always very like kind of jolting in the sense of it's always very like intense and there's like intense emotion and things that feel very like, oh my gosh, are you okay? (laughs) Where as our our son, sometimes it's like about science or you know what I mean? Like it's a different, different kind of thing. So thanks for asking that question because it's it's fun to think about that. Thank you both so much for being here today. You can follow Mila on Instagram at the Empress Han. And Kaylin as well at Mrs. Kaylin Brown. We'll make sure to link that in the podcast description so you get the exact spelling. Both are incredible poets and writers as we just discussed, so you definitely want to follow them. And next week will be our final episode for season one of Soul Conversations before we take a short hiatus for me to get adjusted to mom life. Uh, But we wanted to thank everyone for joining us and listening along so far. The support that we've received has been absolutely incredible. And we're just so appreciative of all the emails and the messages we've received. This podcast is truly a labor of love. And it was kind of a spontaneous project that we started in the middle of this crazy time. So it's been really great to hear how you're all connecting to it and learning from our guests each week. Uh, And we're really excited to show you what's in store for season two later this summer. And as always, you can follow us at Soul Conversations on Instagram, or you can get in touch via our website at www.soulconversationspodcast.com. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.